Hello and welcome to a special edition of the SPAC Insider podcast. This week, SPAC Insider's founder Christy Marvin speaks with Mash Malay. He leads Marsh's SPAC practice, and Andrew Pendergast, who serves as NFP's SPAC practice leader, also joins. They discuss how the rolling waves of the SPAC market have impacted DNO insurance rates, and what teams should be considering moving from this cycle to the next. Mash and Andrew also share their thoughts on some new types of litigation that may shape rates in the future, and which types should not be a worry. Take a listen. Welcome, everybody. We have another special episode this week where we discuss litigation and the insurance market for SPACs, which handedly is an area that is probably not appreciated as much as it should be, given the litigious nature of the U.S. However, as we've seen over the past year or so, class action lawsuits have been increasing for a variety of reasons we're going to discuss. But we're first going to dig into just how is the DNO insurance market working in the current SPAC environment? And what should teams be thinking of to protect themselves in the future? Luckily, we have two leaders in this space joining us today. We have Mach Malay, Managing Director and Marsh's SPAC Practice Leader, as well as Andrew Pendergast, who is the SPAC Practice Leader over at NFP. Regarding directors and officers, officers insurance, I guess you guys are kind of like the body armor for SPAC teams, so to speak. But before we get into it and discuss what's going on, Mach, maybe you can give us sort of like a brief overview of what DNO insurance is and its purpose. Sure, absolutely. So directors and officers liability insurance from my perspective is first and foremost designed to protect the personal assets of the officers and directors of a SPAC or any company that's purchasing the insurance. So there are sort of three coverage pieces to DNO insurance. We call them A, B, and C. C side coverage is coverage for the entity itself for securities claims, which the relevance of that to a SPAC can be debated certainly, particularly during the search period. Coverage B is coverage for the officers and directors if indemnified by the um, insured company. And then coverage A is personal asset protection. So it it covers the officers and directors for claims against them and their status and capacity as such if left non-indemnified. Think insolvency or a type of claim that is non-indemnifiable by law, breach of duty of loyalty perhaps, or some other sort of fiduciary duty type claims um, on settlements and what have you. So the the overall point is to provide balance sheet protection for the entity itself and personal asset protection for the officers and directors. Um, Well, with that being said, and now that we have sort of a baseline to work with, um, let's actually start off with class action lawsuits. As as soon as SPACs started to take off, let's call it in the summer of 2020, we almost immediately saw a corresponding rise in class action lawsuits filed uh, to the point where as soon as the deal was announced, you could pretty much guarantee some sort of suit would be filed within 24 hours. So much. Was that just a a bunch of, let's call it ambulance chasing lawyers filing nuisance lawsuits, or was there something more to it? Like maybe you can kind of talk to the dynamic of what went on there. Sure. So let's be clear, you know, SPACs and DSPACs are not a new thing. Certainly the frequency thereof has increased significantly, but this sort of structure, product, what have you, has existed for a long time. And this litigation has existed for a long time. So I'm a former securities litigator. And one of the things that we did back in the day was defend some of these SPAC, de-SPAC securities class action cases and breach of fiduciary duty cases against SPAC sponsors and, and target teams. What we are seeing is as the number of SPAC IPOs increased and the number of de-SPAC deals increased, the plaintiff's lawyers took a greater interest in the area. And to be clear, this is not litigation that is driven by somebody's grandmother who invested in a SPAC and lost money and therefore has been hurt. This is really driven by by the plaintiff's bar. It's a very well-organized securities plaintiff's bar in the U.S. 
and they look for different opportunities to create revenue for themselves. So if they see a particular area that is growing, they will see if there are ways for them to bring suit. So the vast majority of the litigation we have seen has the important litigation has been post DSPAC close, sort of your classic stock drop litigation that these sorts of plaintiff's lawyers bring all the time against all sorts of public companies, um, long, long established public companies, traditional IPOs, direct listings, um, and now DSPACs. But we have also seen a number of different ways that the plaintiff's lawyers have tried to find other unique angles to bring suit. So whether it's the kind of litigation that was brought against Bill Ackman, SPAC, and a couple others, alleging that they are investment companies and not really SPACs, or the sort of ambulance chasing threats of litigation, Christy, that you mentioned when you announced a DSPAC deal, all of this is part of them trying to generate revenue. I, I will say those announcement-related deals are, are frequent, but quite low severity. So typically they are resolved by making a couple of additional disclosures and paying a mootness fee of maybe you know, 50 to 150,000, usually maybe as much as $400,000, but they are not really insurance events um, with the way that the retentions have been set in this space these days, the deductibles, you're not gonna get through that deductible with that kind of case. So it's a, it's a tax on the deal. And, and typically that tax, if you will, is wrapped into the transaction costs. So it is not a showstopper. It is, does not mean there's anything particularly wrong with the deal. It's just particular lawyers and some of the more bottom feeder lawyers, quite honestly, in the space, trying to take a little bit of money on each deal. When you have 613 deals in a year, and if you can get you know $100,000 here and there on those deals, well, great, right? Um, it, it, it builds up. But I, that's not really the litigation we're concerned about. We are more concerned about the litigation that happens post DSPAC close, where either the target company and or the SPAC itself and, and the D's and O's of both are gone after because the stock price goes down and everyone gets alleged to have done a bad deal for their own personal reasons. And there's alleged conflicts of interest and what have you. But I, I think the insurers have kind of viciously overstated the risk here and overpriced the risk and, and over deductible the risk. That's a word. But there is real risk there, too, for the individual officers and directors of the SPAC and for the target company and its directors and officers. So it has to be thought about and you can build DNO insurance to protect against a lot of that. Well, I, I want to come back to some of the points you just made right there. But you did hit on something earlier, which is that there are you know, currently 613 SPACs out looking for a target, which is just a massive amount of SPACs. Maybe, Andrew, maybe you can answer this. How does the actual volume of SPACs affect, you know, insurance? Because, and in particular, relating to pricing, because, you know, from, listen, I'm by no means a DNO insurance expert at all. <laughs> but, sure. you know, from what I've under, from what I understand that the, you know, DNO insurance costs have gone up significantly as the number of SPACs have increased. So maybe you can kind of like walk, walk me through that. Yeah, and, and so it's it's probably a factor of two things, right? As you guys were just speaking about, just the, the volume and the increase in the volume of securities class action litigation against SPACs certainly increased, right? And that's a factor of, uh, you know, a little bit of more press on SPACs. Uh, certainly, you know, Chairman Gensler certainly taking a, a harder view of the disclosures that are made there. Uh, and then, you know, on top of that, the uh, short sellers, right? On, on, on top of all of that. And so what we've identified is kind of a, a significant increase to, to Mach's point on the post-closed litigation, right, as the number of SPACs and DSPACs have increased. And so if you look at 2020, we put a kind of a securities class action report out specific to those deals. About 19% of DSPACs have seen that post-closed litigation, right, where there's, there's a, a stock drop in 
uh, resulting investor loss, right? When you talk about kind of the other side of the coin, which is the uh, availability of insurance to SPACs, certainly there's, there's still a market for it, right? But there is not an abundance of limit and capital like there is maybe for a traditional IPO, right? There are uh, fewer insurers that will write SPACs, SPAC IPOs than there are traditional IPOs, right? And so as the increase in, in SPACs has come about, the capacity available obviously gets somewhat constrained. And whenever you have those supply and demand economics, the pricing is going to increase just naturally. And so I think part of that is what we've seen. I think a lot of it is more due to the, the increase in claims frequency and the what I would say is a lack of tangible settlement data for the insurers to point to, right? We've had all these claims. Not many of them have settled out, right? Uh, only a, a, you know, a handful, right, over the past few years. And so what the insurers are are waiting to see is, you know, what's the actual repercussions of this all going to be, right? So you talked about, we have kind of the nuisance claims, right? The, the kind of the, the proxy related, you issue it. They say it's, it's inadequate. We don't have enough to, uh, to, to vote upon here, right? We don't have the right information. Those kind of go away, you know, not really an insurance event. You have the 10B5 claims that come in post-close, which are a little more severe, but again, haven't settled out. And now we're seeing uh, kind of a third but related type of claim, which is kind of direct actions in Delaware court, um, alleging breach of fiduciary duty against those fact teams. And so when you think of it from the insurance company's perspective, you can not only be fighting a securities class action in federal court, but you could also be concurrently fighting that in state court in Delaware. And that all that does is increase uh, defense costs. It complicates the ability for these teams to settle. And so those two things are additional complicating factors that when underwriters go to underwrite these risks, they now have to to put that into the puzzle, uh, which could also increase rates. I think there is a perception that SPAC DNO insurance costs have just gone up and up and up sort of on a linear basis. I think that's a little off. I, I think what really happened was in the fall of 2020, you had a completely you know, sort of fundamental change in the DNO insurance marketplace. <clears throat> the insurers who had been doing this for a long time viciously increased the deductibles and the premiums that they would charge for it. So you saw deductibles go up three to five times, five to 10 times, and premiums do the same thing. So it jumped, changed fundamentally almost overnight. And then there's been some creep since then upwards, but I don't think it's true that it's just been increasing ever since. And, and Andrew and I have been part of trying to keep that marketplace in check, quite honestly, um, from the brokerage side and introducing additional competitors into the space, additional insurers, trying to introduce you know, new proprietary structures that SPACs can use to, to protect their directors and officers to try to keep those costs down because sponsors do have limited capital, uh, limited working capital to dedicate to DNO insurance. They have to pay their lawyers and their bankers as well. So um, we have done a lot to try to keep those costs in check, but you did have that fundamental change. The, the time before that I referred to as the time of milk and honey. You could get DNO insurance pretty cheaply with a decent retention. And that really changed fundamentally. And it's been a bit of a street fight ever since. And I think Andrew's right. I think some of that is attributable to the regulatory environment and the litigation environment. But a lot of it is, as, as Andrew said, attributable to that supply and demand. There's not a lot of capacity out there for insurers to be writing a thousand SPACs. That was not expected from them. Um, it was not really something they thought was coming down the pike. And so you had a lot of insurers start to tighten up their capacity and charge more money for it. Well, so you bring up a, an interesting point about supply and demand. Supply has significantly curtailed, let's call it in the last quarter, certainly since January 1st, 2022. We're just not seeing as many IPOs price. So with that being said, are you starting to see 
some of the pricing come down at all yet? Or do you anticipate that going forward? I think we've seen it level off, right? Over the past call it four to five months, right? I think we kind of hit the high point over the summer of last year. And since then, it's been relatively stable from a pricing perspective. I don't anticipate pricing to come down in a material way. Like you mentioned, we still have over 600 SPACs out there looking for deals, right? Which means that insurers have 600 individual clients with capacity deployed on those accounts. And so in the traditional DNO sense, policies are written for 12 months. They renew every year and kind of that capacity gets re-upped on the insurance side. Given that these deals are typically 18 to 24 month policies, it's a much longer time that the insurers have to have this capacity and limit out there. So there isn't that re-up that occurs kind of on an annual basis. So it's really going to take, I think, one, the litigation environment to, to calm down. Uh, it's going to take a lot of these specs to go through and go through successfully. And then if, if we're in what seems to be hopefully somewhat of a cycle of 2022, late 2022, 2021, massive IPOs, Hopefully this year, or excuse me, 2022 is, is the year kind of a match going this, the year of the DSPAC, right? Where a lot of that capacity gets deployed. And then maybe next year we see a re-up of, of now we're back to the IPO side of the cycle. Um, you could see some fluctuation in pricing. I just don't know that we're at a point in the market yet where we're going to expect, you know, pricing to come down 10, 20, 30%. There's, there's just nothing that's going to indicate that to me from a regulatory claims perspective right now that that pricing is going to come down. I just also don't anticipate to increase unless the frequency of claims and these settlements, um, you know, kind of go up. Where we have seen pricing start to get a bit better is on the traditional IPO side and on the DSPAC side. I do think there's been more competition there and that's, that's gotten a bit better since three to six months ago, for sure. Uh, but it hasn't really trickled over to the SPAC side yet. And, and part of that is to Andrew's point. So sort of, you know, at least a, a two-year marriage for the SPAC DNO insurers and perhaps an eight-year marriage uh, with the runoff. And so their capacity is at risk for a long time. But to Andrew's point about pricing, I wouldn't expect it to go up because these deals, if you look at a SPAC's investment period pricing and then runoff pricing, these are essentially priced at 40 to 50% risk of a limit loss right now, which is pretty darn high um, and probably overstated. So anything that comes down, whether it's the Churchill multi-plan decision out of the Delaware Chancery Court or what have you, um, I get calls from underwriters, and I'm sure Andrew does, and they say, oh my goodness, you know, the risk just went up. And, and my response is essentially, no, this is the risk we were already pricing for. So this is not a change in the risk profile. This is the expected follow-through on the volume of deals. And, and we shouldn't be further increasing retentions and pricing to an even more ridiculous level. We should be saying, all right, this is why we priced it this way, and this is what we expected to see. Well, you bring up a good point. I was actually just about to ask about the multi-plan Churchill deal. And, you know, while you bring up a good point that a suit like that, you know, should already be pricing in the risk, I can't help but think that if the outcome of that suit goes the wrong way, that it's going to have an impact on the SPAC market. So I think, I'm not sure, I think I somewhat disagree with Machin that that, that type of litigation, right? So looking at multi-plan specifically, a direct suit in Delaware court against the SPAC teams that also brings in the sponsor LLC that also could bring in the financial institution sponsor. I don't know if, because it was the kind of the first time that it's happened. I don't know if that was necessarily factored in, right? I think the repercussions of that are already kind of being seen prior to that settling out in that you're seeing similar cases being brought um, on other deals. So Heisen, for example, right? You had the securities class action filed in federal court back in September 
And then recently, a few days ago, they filed a direct suit in Delaware, basically with the same pleading or same arguments as multi-plan trying to get the entire fairness standard uh, applied to the case, right? What that signals to me is that we're probably going to see that trend of federal securities class actions with potentially these follow-on direct suits in Delaware continue because it's already somewhat been successful in multi-plan, right? The, the case, uh, they, they were allowed to plead that, go forward with it. So if that trend continues, again, now we're instead of just fighting on one front from a federal securities class action perspective, now we're fighting on two fronts in state court as well. I think it does change somewhat. I, I would presume that that entire defense cost was factored into a degree, but I don't think entirely. Mm. Again, it's going to it's gonna depend on how a lot of this stuff settles out. But for right now, that's the trend I think that's concerning the underwriters the most. Yeah, so I think if yeah. you went back, if you went back 18 to 24 months and talked to underwriters about the, the ones who are in this space and said, what is your greatest concern? They would have said conflicts of interest. We are concerned that courts will, will perceive there to be conflicts of interest in these transactions. And when I say that's come to, to the fore, that's kind of what Churchill Multiplan is based upon, two, two pieces, alleged conflicts of interest and alleged failures to disclose material facts. And there's an old adage in the law that bad facts make bad law. There's some tough allegations in that Churchill multi-plan case about independence of the board and about the, the failure to obtain a third-party fairness opinion as opposed to a um, affiliated fairness opinion, those sorts of things. And I think it's a unique decision, and hopefully it remains a unique decision. But Andrew's absolutely right. I think we can expect to see some copycat cases where lawyers try to pursue the same theory and see if it sticks. If one case makes it past a motion to dismiss, um, the costs go up significantly in that case and increase the chances of settlement. So why not try in other situations as well? I think that's a fairly extreme example. We hope it's an outlier, but we're likely to see some more cases tried in the same vein. Yeah, and, and somewhat is part of the conversation, but at least from the insurer's perspective, right? If you look at those two claims, right? In the multi-plan claim, M. Klein is a defendant, is held or trying to be held as a controlling entity of the SPAC, right? Given their kind of investment. Same in Heisen, right? Where Riverstone is, is trying to be held as a controlling entity. And so not only do you have the SPAC's own DNO policy implicated, right? And potentially paying defense settlement there, but now you have the private equity firm or financial institution sponsor as a defendant under their own policy, right? Mm -hmm. Having to pay that. And so you could have two policies implicated in, in kind of one circumstance. So that's also kind of uh, top of mind for the insurers is how much exposure do we really have? Is it really just tied to the SPAC or are there multiple parties to this and multiple policies that we could be paying on? Yeah, it seems like a, a lot riding on this one, one lawsuit. But, you know, we've been talking about the DSPAC. Let's maybe pivot back to the, the IPO portion of it, which is, um, you know, what are the problem areas in an S1 that do affect pricing? Um, meaning, what do DNO insurance people look for? What are the key underwriting factors when looking to underwrite? I think insurers would, would love to see a SPAC come out that is intending to do a, you know, U.S. listed SPAC for a U.S. deal with a company that has a 20-year history of profit and is bricks and mortar and what have you, but that's not really what SPACs do, right? So start from there, and as you expand out and start to take um, into view sort of all the other factors, the risk profile gets a little bit more challenging at each layer. So if, if a SPAC is intending to do a deal with a non-U.S. company with a foreign filer, um, I think that takes up the risk profile a bit from the insurer's perspective. 
If you are in a particular industry that has seen more of this litigation, like electric vehicles, that takes the risk up. If you're in the cannabis space or if you're in the Bitcoin space or, or crypto or what have you, the insurers see that as higher risk. But if you take it back to the initial S1, what the insurers certainly focus on is the investment thesis, but even more so the experience of the team itself, the SPAC sponsor team, the board, what have you. They want to see a team that has a lot of experience doing sure SPACs, but also just deals in general so that they know that that team can do due diligence on a, on a deal, that they have experience taking companies public and the risks involved in that, that they're aware of the fiduciary duties that are put upon them. All of that, if you have a really experienced team and a good investment thesis, I think there's a good story that can be told there about the SPAC's individual risk profile. And one thing that has been beneficial, I think, over the last 12 to 18 months is that some of the insurers who do a lot of this have become more willing to differentiate between teams. So they, it's no longer just, it's a SPAC, so we're going to price it this way. It's sort of, it's a SPAC, so it's on this spectrum of pricing, but mm. you can get to the lower end of the spectrum if you have a great team and you have a great thesis. On the other hand, if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you have an inexperienced team and a thesis that involves doing a deal in Latin America or Asia or Africa, what have you, you're going to see higher pricing and more punitive terms in terms of what kind of coverage you can actually get to. So I, I do think the insurers are willing to underwrite these deals a little more closely now, which is great for the teams that can tell a good story. So, so just from hearing what you're saying, A, international SPACs are considered riskier, but B, I have another follow-up question to that, which is, you know, a lot of times we do have SPAC teams that don't necessarily um, state that they're going to look in a certain sector. They'll just say at SPAC Insider, call them general broad SPACs, right? Like they have a mandate to look at anything and everything. The Gores team typically does that. Is that considered riskier as well? I think the insurers would love to see more definition on what you're going to do. But, you know, we've had SPACs who have been focused on one particular area in theory, and then have done a deal with a company that you, you could fairly say was not in that particular industry as well. So whether you start off thinking about luxury goods and end up doing used cars, or if you are <laughs> focused on ed tech and end up doing Bitcoin mining, you know, things can change. Um, and there's a limited number of targets out there now with this many SPACs too. So I think the insurers, first and foremost, they want to hear that you're not focused on doing a deal in the People's Republic of China or Macau. And then if you can cross that off, which is in many S1s these days, then it's more of a, okay, so what is your, where's your industry strength? Where is your geographic focus? Do you have a 90% chance of doing a deal in the US or Western Europe that will reassure them? Are you planning on doing a deal in an area where you have operational expertise that will reassure them. But, but you're right. There's a lot of flexibility in these S1s to, to change your focus. And the insurers know that. And, and so that's one of the things, one of the pieces of uncertainty that they're pricing in. Interesting. Well, let's talk about liquidations now. Um, you know, many people in this space have had been predicting an increase in liquidations going forward. How does that play into the DNO insurance equation, both from a how you price new IPOs right now. I, I guess I'm just looking for some more context around liquidations and what you think the market's going to look like because of that, the DNO market. I think I think all the underwriters expect, like you mentioned, right, that there's going to have to be some liquidations, right? There's just simply maybe not, there are enough targets out there, right? And SPACs are looking for, I think, ways to either 
transfer the ownership of the SPAC or liquidate, right? How do we get out of this? Um, you know, the way we kind of structure DNO policies, we usually bake in predetermined pricing for runoff uh, for the teams in the event of liquidation. And I think the underwriters and the insurance community understand that in the event of liquidation, right, shareholders are going to be made whole plus interest, right? Um, certainly there's an opportunity cost lost, but that's not really something that you could right, claim uh, in, in the context of a, a securities cost action lawsuit, right? You can't say that I lost out on $100 million if you got your money back and, and no deal was done per se. So I think it's, le- it's viewed as less risky and therefore the pricing for that tail uh, is far less than if it were to go through with a transaction or a spec, right? So that's all kind of pre-negotiated in, in most DNO policies. As far as the limits, right? The, that's kind of the other part of the equation, right? SPACs may buy higher limits at the time of IPO thinking that they're going to get a deal done. And then when the spec doesn't occur and you have to liquidate, you have to somewhat adjust or think about, you know, am I buying too much limit now? Because what's the really the possibility of seeing a claim, right? And so that's all part of the discussion at that point. Hey, maybe we bought 10 or $15 million in limits. Do we need that much? Because certainly there's, there's, a, there's still a high cost of purchase runoff. You know, is 5 million more appropriate, is 2.5 million more appropriate given that we're just simply liquidating? Do we need to buy full cover DNO, right? Given that there's no balance sheet left, should we just be transferring everything to solely what we call side A or personal asset protection? And so there has to be a conversation there at that point as to what is in the best interest of the team evaluating the actual risk profile as of a liquidation uh, in the context of, of shareholders really not having, not necessarily have, having the ability to sue, but really not having a leg necessarily to stand on. So I think all of that gets factored in. I would say pretty much every SPAC DNO policy that goes out these days has two, two types of runoff coverage priced in it. One is for doing the actual deal itself. And if you actually close a DSPAC deal, then the runoff pricing is you know, maybe 250 to 400%. On the other hand, if you liquidate, there is a runoff provision usually in these policies that says you can buy runoff coverage for 150% or something in that range. Traditionally, there hasn't really been a lot of litigation around liquidation. But in this space, traditional only means so much, right? And now you're under the eye of the, of the plaintiff's bar, so who knows? But the litigation we have seen in the past around litigation, or I'm sorry, about liquidation, has not been securities litigation or anything like that. It's been unpaid vendors, essentially. So law firms who didn't get their last bill paid, investment banks, perhaps someone who thinks they're entitled to a finder's fee, fairly small numbers. And so I find it hard to believe that many SPAC sponsors will actually go out of pocket for another 150% of the premium in order to have runoff coverage with, with that um, exposure profile. And I have to date not seen, I'm not sure I've seen any SPAC sponsor teams actually buy runoff for a liquidation, but it's a consideration in an industry like this where everyone is under more scrutiny now. Andrew, I think you mentioned change of control, which you know I think is leading to what I like to call the pre-owned market for SPACs. <laughs> you know, the, the used car version of SPACs where SPAC teams want to purchase an existing SPAC from another team. There was a lot of talk about, like at least talk that I heard um, towards the end of last year, beginning of this year, but it hasn't really panned out. I have heard whispers that it is a DNO insurance problem, but maybe you can kind of talk to that and give a further explanation. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're kind of hearing it behind the scenes a little bit as well. Teams towards the end of their life cycle or that had a deal that they were looking to announce that maybe fell through, trying to find a way to transfer kind of the ownership of the SPAC. And on the other side, right, teams are looking to find an existing SPAC that they can rent, for lack of a better term, take it, you know, not necessarily take it over, but bring a deal to the table for them and then transfer ownership at the end of the, you know, kind of the DSPAC transaction, right? And that 
that poses some interesting questions and things that you need to consider from your existing DNO program, right? What really comes into play, is there a change in control of the board of directors of the SPAC itself as a result of the transaction? And I don't mean simply swapping individuals out, right? What it really comes down to is voting rights on the board, right? Is the existing team or the existing insurers retaining more than 50% of the voting rights as a part of this transaction, or are they transferring that, right? And then timing comes into play as well. So exactly, essentially what happens if, if, if a team were to come in, it's called mid due diligence period, right? And, and swap out, right? So another, another team comes in, buys out their, their founder shares, and the voting rights of the board have now essentially changed. The existing DNO policy will convert to runoff automatically meaning that it will cease covering anything that that team does going forward, the new team. Now, the runoff will continue through the natural expiration of the policy, whether there's nine months or 12 months or 15 months left, right, depending on when the transfers happen. Um, but that new team that comes in is going to have to buy Dino insurance to protect themselves for everything that they do going forward. And there's obviously a significant cost to that, right? The former team may want to buy a tail right? They may want to buy six years of tail coverage and there's, there's costs associated with that. And so when you think about the economics of coming into an existing SPAC, buying out that team, right? Paying for you know, their founder shares to buy their, their ownership of the SPAC, and then also having the additional cost of the DNO insurance. I think what we've kind of heard rumblings about, and to your point, Christy, is that it makes it um, you know, not necessarily economically feasible to, to do that transaction and have to pay for insurance costs. So I haven't, I haven't seen any team be successful in doing it. I think there's still a few working through it, but that change in control provision and those discussions definitely need to happen if that's something the teams are considering, because it can be, it can be a burden on, the, on getting the transaction closed. If you want to talk about a risk that the underwriters probably weren't factoring in to their risk evaluation, having a new team come in and take over the SPAC and, and take a different path, that's one they probably were not anticipating. And, we, we, did hear, we did hear rumblings about this at the end of last year in particular, where I think you had some teams who had gotten deals done. And during that process, they had said, well, we, this, this was the winner. This was the target that we picked. But there were seven or eight other really good companies that we talked to, and, and we think they could do these SPACs as well. So maybe we should take over a couple other SPACs and do those deals. Well, things have changed a little bit now, right? And they've changed in terms of the ease of getting a deal done. And they have also changed from the perspective of how long does it take, right? So what's mm -hmm. the timing on one of these takeovers? Well, it's one thing when the deal is taking three to four months from announcement to close. It's another thing when your average deal is taking five to six months from announcement to close and some are taking 12 months to get done. When's the right moment where one team will say, we give up and another team says, we're willing to jump in and try to get this done quickly. I think that has gotten harder for folks to give up and harder for folks to decide that they're going to jump in as well. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. All right, Munch, let's talk regulation. Obviously, the SEC this year has taken a hard look at SPACs. There have been all sorts of pronouncements from Gensler about you know disclosure regarding SPACs, making them more traditional IPO-like. What, in your sense, happens to the SPAC market regarding regulation, and how does that affect the DNO insurance market? In this area... I tend to agree with Doug Elinoff, who says for the SEC to regulate disclosures is completely appropriate. Let's make sure that there's full and complete disclosure to potential investors and what have you. Could not agree more. On the other hand, if you start actually regulating the terms of a deal or really trying to restructure how a SPAC works versus a, a traditional IPO, 
it's it strikes me as overstepping. And so although we've seen a lot of pronouncements around disclosures and a lot of pronouncements around accounting and a lot of changes there and also pronouncements around, hey, look, don't don't invest in this back just because there is a celebrity participant and it sounds cool for retail investors. Right. I think all oh, that's that's real. But I would hope that the SEC and Congress would not jump in here and say, oh, my goodness, there's so many SPACs, there must be a problem. I think the increase in SPACs, there was certainly some fundamental basis to that increase. Should it have increased as much as it did? We shall see in terms of liquidations and the like, right? But I have trouble believing that the SEC will actually step in at some point this year. And look, it's all a crystal ball, but I have trouble believing that they would step in and say, this is now going to be treated just like an IP, like a traditional IPO. It changes the landscape in a, in such a fundamental way. It's it would be kind of unfair. Now you could say some of the accounting changes were a bit unfair as well, um, given the cloudiness around that and, and and the SEC's former positions on that. But absent major congressional sort of movement, which Congress has a lot of other things to think about right now, that's for sure. Um, I, I hesitate to think that 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 is going to change fundamentally this year. But you've had some enforcement actions. You have had some investigations, usually on the fringes uh, of this industry. And you have that in every industry. Andrew and I went through a lot of that on the private equity venture capital hedge fund side together. There was plenty of that sort of activity there. I don't expect there to be an explosion in that sort of activity. I think what we have generally seen is it's limited to the most extreme circumstances. And often it's limited to situations where there, all, there is already an existing securities class action case or breach of fiduciary duty case with some pretty bad facts because the SEC reads the news too and they see that and they say, you know what, we should do something here too. This sounds like it was a, a bad situation and we should get involved. We have not seen them take on a lot of sort of, we're going to be the driving force behind this and then litigation follows us. And I would hope it would stay that way. Andrew, you have any additional thoughts? Yeah, no, I completely agree with what you're saying, right? I mean, for there to be real kind of change as to the terms of a deal would be definitely, I think, overstepping by the SEC. It seems that their focus right now is protecting the retail investor, right? And the forward-looking statements that SPACs are putting out there, because ultimately, the failure to kind of meet those goals that they set for themselves is what results in litigation and results in kind of the retail shareholder, you know, losing their money, right? They're, they're wholly dependent on what they are being provided by these SPAC teams in the proxy filings, right? And so I think it's to the benefit of anybody and everybody, including really the insurers, right? That there is as much kind of guidelines uh, to be given around how those disclosures are being made uh, to be completely fair to all parties uh, involved. I don't know how many retail investors are getting IPO allocations for SPAC these days, right? I think it's, it's mostly right, hedge funds and institutional investors for the, for, for the large majority. And you see that on the redemption side of things, right? Of the you know, kind of the SPAC mafia is taking 70 to 80% uh, out of these deals at the end of the day. And so is it, is the 25% that's left really all retail investors? I'm not sure, but I, I think it's, it's certainly to the benefit of, of everybody involved and the insurers appreciate that. It's not that this type of regulation is going to scare them uh, to any degree. All right. Well, last question for you both. What are you thinking about as far as market outlook for the rest of 2022 and 2023? Do you have any thoughts yet on what you think will happen in the SPAC market? So I think the SPAC marketplace and the DSPAC marketplace has been depressed in the first quarter um, by, by stock market volatility, along with some other um, sort of impacts from 
institutional investors being willing to do backstopping of, of these deals through through pipe investments and other alternative investment structures. I think, you know, we've seen a stock market that stayed relatively steady and positive for the last six days. If that continues for a couple of weeks, you might see a rush of SPACs come out and, and you might see a rush of, of, of these SPAC deals close. But I think the overall trend is going to be that you will certainly see less SPAC IPOs this year than you did last year. And we'll start to see this normalize a bit. So I think a normalized situation would, would be to see more like 50 to 100 SPAC IPOs per year. There are still an awful lot of large public companies out there who might be able to go public through one of these structures. And so it makes some sense to have 50 to 100 a year. Whether or not it makes sense to have 600 per year is you know, a whole different question, probably not sustainable. <laughs> on, yeah. on the DSPAC side, I think we will see a significant number of DSPAC deals close in, in the second, third, and fourth quarter. You have a lot of SPACs with expiring search periods. It's painful to try to extend those search periods at the investor level and at the stock market level, but it's also painful from an insurance perspective too. Andrew and I have had to deal with trying to extend DNO policies for this, these SPACs that were placed two years ago. It's not fun from a cost perspective and a transactional perspective. The, the numbers are a bit absurd. You can end up paying as much for a three-month extension as you might have been paying for a two-year policy that was placed two years ago. So it's, it's painful, but we're going to see a lot of deals close in the second half of this year. And, and we're seeing that flow coming in now in terms of announcements and SPAC teams coming to us and saying, we're going under LOI. We need to start getting ready for our own runoff and for our target company to get their DNO insurance in place. So I think Andrew mentioned that I had said it's the year of the DSPAC. I, th I think that's right. I think that's still going to happen. Obviously, Q1 has not exactly been gangbusters for traditional IPOs or DSPACs, but I think it's going to pick up uh, and we'll, we'll see that. That's actually pretty interesting, though, uh, talking about extensions. I haven't really considered that you would need to get additional DNO insurance for an extension, which, I mean, listen, we have a couple out there that are almost three years old, a couple of specs that have just extended ad nauseum, and their trust has been whittled down. Does it get progressively more expensive the, the older the spec gets and the less the amount held in trust? It's, it's not necessarily progressively more expensive. It is definitely more expensive, right? So, <laughs> I think, um, so for example, right? So let's say you had a team that went out in 2019 or late 2019 or, or late 2018, right? And they're they're coming up there at the end of their 24-month policy term. There's a good chance that that team paid like a quarter or a fifth of what teams are paying now for a policy, right? Wow. So maybe $200,000, $225,000 for a relatively sizable limit, right? Back in that market, insurers were willing to provide $10 million policies for that range of premium, right? In today's market, um, you, can't, you can't get 5 million for half that price, right, in some cases. So to extend, right, there's no guarantee from the underwriter that they're gonna do it at what we would call pro rata, right? Or simply extend those terms out and say, okay, for another three months, it's just gonna be you know, a third or, or, or an eighth, I would say, right, of, of what you paid in 2020. They're repricing it to today's market. And so you could, as Mosh mentioned, certainly have a situation where if you're looking to extend out three months or six months or whatever, you know, the shareholders allow you to do, you're going to pay close to, if not certainly over what you paid three years ago for your 24 month policy period. I think awesome. one, one, one interesting impact that has had on the DNO insurance placement side is, is sponsors started to make accommodations around the, the SPAC terms. 
there was overfunding of the trust. There was changing of the warrant structure. And some of them also started to agree to do shorter search periods. So they would say, we're not going to do a 24 month search period. We'll do an 18, a 15, even a 12 month search period. And they would say to us, why are you still putting us on a 24 month DNO insurance policy? And I would say, because there is no real premium relief for doing a shorter period. The underwriters understand the true risk is in the DSPAC itself, not in the length of the search period. And since you're not getting any benefit by shortening it, well, what happens if you extend beyond 12, 15, 18? You might as well have that DNO insurance in place and, and not have to extend it. So um, we are often the, the tail and not the dog in many of the worlds that we, we live in on the DNO insurance side. And this is one of those where we are saying, don't change this just because that has changed. Uh, and I do think that some SPACs will benefit from that. They might well get to the end of their 12, 15, 18 month period sometime next year. And they'll come to us and say, we're extending the <clears throat> search period. Do we have to extend the policy? And we will get to say, remember that advice we gave you about just doing a 24 month policy that's coming in real handy right now. Yeah. And, and from the insurer's perspective as well, right? To Tamacha's point, the discount versus a 24-month policy versus a 12-month policy is almost non-existent because from the insurance perspective, that has no impact or bearing on the defense costs or settlement that you can pay as a result of the claim, right? Just because you got a deal done in month 11 as opposed to month 18 really doesn't mean that you're going to pay half the defense costs or half the settlement you were going to be doing. You're still looking at the same targets, same industry, same enterprise value, same all this kind of stuff, right? So it, it is definitely to the benefit of teams to buy a full term, full kind of 18 or 24 month policy to account for that, given that the pricing isn't, there's really no relief to be had there. All right. So Andrew, how about you? How about your uh, 2022, 2023 <clears throat> outlook? Yeah. So, you know, I think I echo some of Marsh's comments where today, this year is definitely going to be more focused on DSPACs. I'm hesitant to say that we're going to see a, a, a lot of them towards the end of the year for a few reasons. One, it seems that the pipe market is, is much more challenging, right? And certainly we're seeing debt being brought into that, right? Minimum cash requirements being waived. And for some of these deals, right? It's, it's, it's becoming a lot harder, right? I spoke to a SPAC sponsor last week. He's like, I got to raise, I have to raise capital three times now. I have to raise IPO capital, I have to raise pipe capital, and then I might have to do additional financing just to get, to get a deal done, right? And so, you know, if we do see a number of SPACs announce, right, deals over the next two to three months, I think the time to close that we're seeing, as Mach mentioned, right, five to six months, that could be seven to eight months, right, to, to get the deals through the door if this kind of challenging secondary market continues. On a further kind of note, right, for going long term, I'm hoping that we're in somewhat of a cycle in that we're going to see years of IPOs, right, for the, for the SPACs and raising capital, and then, you know, 12 to 15 months of deployment, and then more back to raising capital. I hope we're in the midst of that and that the kind of market is somewhat figuring out what the right balance is between that IPO cycle and the DSPAC cycle, because I think we overdid it probably in 2021, right? With, you know, 613 SPACs getting out there, that's probably too much. From, a, from an insurance perspective, I think we're going to remain relatively stable unless we see the trends of kind of these direct Delaware actions continue and the claims begin to settle out for dollar amounts that you know, significantly impact the insurance marketplace. Because again, even though we've you know, had new entrants into the marketplace, um, there are only so many that write these consistently. And you have a few carriers that are very heavily exposed to the market. And if you were to see an uptick in the claims, like I mentioned in 20, 2020 deals, right? 20% of them saw DSPAC you know, significant litigation. That number likely will go up as we go further on in time. And if they settle out at 
10, 15, $20 million on average, like what we see in the traditional IPO market, right? It's back, or excuse me, securities class action settlements around 13 million bucks plus defense costs. That's going to be a significant hit to a lot of these insurers. So we're keeping a close eye on that. I wish I had a crystal ball, but that's, that's generally where my head's at these days. One thing I would point out that sometimes gets lost here, though, on the litigation side is, as Andrew mentioned, sort of around a 20% hit rate on those DSPAC deals. It's not so different from traditional IPOs. You have sort of a 15 to 20% hit rate on traditional IPOs typically as well. So you, know, you often read commentary in this space from litigators, from insurers, saying that this is an avalanche of litigation. I think it's a predictable trickle of litigation based upon the sheer volume of the number of DSPACs that closed. And we can expect to continue to see that trickle. What would be great is if we saw a bunch of these class action cases dismissed. I think that would, be, would fundamentally help the marketplace and reinsure, reassure insurers that they're not crazy, that this is not a every single DSPAC gets sued and has a big settlement kind of situation. I think a lot of these cases are kind of weak quite honestly. Uh, If you look at the actual allegations, the allegations that are contained in the complaint, if you go back to the S4 for the DSPAC deal, often they track almost directly to a risk factor that was disclosed. If you disclose the risk factor and then that risk factor came through, you shouldn't be able to be sued for that, or at least you shouldn't be able to have a meritorious suit brought on that basis, right? So hopefully some of these cases will go away. We'll have to see. The problem is if you have judges who have read a little too much in the news about how SPACs are the new four-letter word or the worst thing since sliced bread, they might take sort of a critical eye to these cases different from an IPO, but hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah, I would agree. I think the media is probably the most dangerous uh, risk to <laughs> the SPAC market right now, just in general. Um, all right. So last question for you. This is just a fun one. Have, have either of you guys ever had to look at a team to potentially underwrite and you looked at it and you were just like, Absolutely not. <laughs> I can't even I can't even do this. So we work for all of our teams to try to get the best possible deal we can. Certainly the quality of teams and the quality in the investment thesis varies from team to team. I think in the entirety of the last three years, we have only had one SPAC that we could not find capacity for. And it had a very unique profile and very unique team that sort of checked every negative box you could imagine from an insurance <laughs> underwriter perspective. And, and that was really the only one. And it is one where if we had done that deal right now, the, the conflict going on <laughs> between Russia and the Ukraine would have been front and center. So I can't really blame <laughs> the insurers for not having gotten involved with that, quite honestly, in retrospect, it was disappointing at the time. But every single other SPAC we have looked at we have been able to get them uh, at least personal asset protection for their officers and directors. Yeah, it's same here, right? You know, there's 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 teams that we we have discussions with where you have to be upfront with them that it's going to be a challenging time for them in the marketplace, right? I think the earlier that you can start those conversations with those clients, the earlier you can kind of get engaged with the broker, right? And have a, a realistic understanding of here's the capital allocation that you need to put towards insurance, given the risk profile. If you want this level of coverage, it's something you have to do. You know, we've never had an issue getting coverage for, for a team. There's been some teams that are significantly more expensive for um, just given their characteristics. All right. Well, listen, I don't want to keep you uh, too long today, but I really appreciate you both. Um joining and having this discussion. It's been super helpful. Personally, for me, as someone who doesn't fully understand the Dino insurance market, this has been a really good conversation and uh, really appreciate you coming by. Thank you very yeah. much. Thanks, Chris. It was a lot of fun.